I'd like to introduce Rabbi Dr. Richard Weiss um, to open this plenary session. Thank you very much, Avital. Thank you to the Shiva University Medical Ethics Society. Thank you for the opportunity to present. My name is Richard Weiss. I, I have been uh, genetically programmed to introduce this session in four minutes. This session, the last session of the day, is entitled Frontiers in Modern Technology. It will explore how the use of medical research and technology of genetics can be used to prevent and manage genetic diseases as well as be applied to practical halacha. Very briefly, since you can read extensively about each of the presenters in the packet that you have, I will just briefly introduce each speaker in the order in which they will speak. Uh, Dr. Gil Atzmon will be the first speaker. Dr. Atzmon is an assistant professor of endocrinology and genetics at Albert College of Medicine. His focus of research is in aging, working on the identification of the longevity gene, and that will be his focus of discussion. Second, we'll be speaking Dr. Harry Ostrer, who is a professor of pediatrics, pathology, medicine, and director of human genetics at New York University School of Medicine. His focus is on the practice and, and clinical aspects of medical genetics, as well as laboratory diagnostics regarding identification of genetics, and his focus will be a discussion on Jewish population genetics. Third, we'll be speaking Dr. Wayne Rosencrantz, who uh, holds degrees from MIT, PhD from Boston University in cell molecular biology, and uh, he is a distinguished fellow at the Center of Biomedical Innovation at MIT, working on healthcare strategy and policy issues related to science and medicine. His focus will be policy aspects of personalized medicine. And lastly, we're speaking Mori Varebi, Rabbi Herschel Schechter, who is the Nathan Vivian Fink Distinguished Professorial Chair and Talmud Occupant. He is also Rosh Kola, the Marcus and Dina Katz Kolel. He is uh, one of the preeminent uh, and uh, highly regarded worldwide Talmudic Chachomim, Talmudic scholars in Poskim, and Halachic authority is written extensively, spoken extensively on a variety of all aspects of Jewish law and in particular a focus on Jewish medical ethics and bioethics. And on behalf of Rabbi Brander, the dean of the Center for the Jewish Future, as well as myself, I'd like to personally extend uh, on Rabbi Brander's behalf and behalf of, to be quite honest, all of Rabbi Schechter's students and all who were never formerly his students because he does not discriminate all the time that he spends, all of the effort that he puts in and invests whenever we call, whenever we need assistance, guidance, and counseling. Rebrander specifically mentioned to him that until he became the director for the uh, dean for the Center for the Jewish Future, he knew from a distance all of the time that Rebrander always made available to us. But now that he works here, he realizes even more so how much how attentive Rebrander is, and we'd like to thank him on all of our behalf for all the time he spends to all the Rabbanim worldwide. So in that order, and I will not speak in between, so the speakers, as I introduce them, shall uh, present themselves. So, Dr. Atzimon. Thank you. I would like to uh, thank the organizer for inviting me to speak here. And today I want to talk, you know, the whole morning and uh, part of the new afternoon we talked about mutation as a bad thing. I'm going to talk today on mutation as a good thing in reassociation with a centenarian or living longer. Um, we started this, uh, you know, this day with Sensen and Bereshit, you know, God create uh, Adam. And uh, exactly in Bereshit it says, 
וידון רוחי באדם, בשגם, והיו חייו 120 שנה. Which means we designed to live for 120 years. The question how? And uh, I want to uh, connect between uh, yesterday parsha to next parsha, which show the uh, rainbow as a, as a future, as a desire. And I think that what we do is um, to give you give a sense of what's going to be in in the future and how uh, and what we want to get into. So with further extent, I will uh, continue with my talk with as uh, talking about Ashkenazi centenarians as a model for healthy aging. And just to not uh, leave uh, anyone behind, those are the list of uh, acknowledgement to the people that uh, support to this work. And on top of everyone is Dr. Nir Bazalai, which uh, initiated this uh, project. Um, the first three uh, slides, what I want to show um, is what happened to those guys at the end of life. If we talk from health perspective, if we look at the last year, how much was spent on health associate treatment, we see that centenarians has much less compared to cohort that are 30 years younger. Either this slide from 2003, this one, or this one, which show that on the last two years of life, Centenarian was was spent, you know, uh, health uh, treatment or medical cost during the last two years was eight thousand, compared to seventeen years old, which was twenty four thousand dollars. The question is, is it because they are healthier, or because the doctor gave up on them? So with this, I want to tell you two stories, one from my personal um, and one from our um, research studies. So as you can see, there is, this is a family of four siblings. All of them, uh, three of them still alive, but all of them are 100 years old. Uh, the one from the left with the glasses, yeah. Uh, she's today 107 years old. Okay, uh, the bottom, uh, bottom figure is uh, a picture that was uh, done like 80 years before the, the top one. And uh, this is another information or another story from it, that this lady that I just spoke about, she smoked for more than 88 years. <laughs> Which show, if you smoke for 88 years, you probably live longer. Uh, the other thing is, when she was 102, we were looked for her for more than three days. We couldn't find her. We thought we lost her. Eventually, when we find her, she says she was too busy organizing the 100 years old birthday of her sister. Another story of this unique family is the one that's holding the rifle. He is still... 
he is still working. He's 99, almost 100, and he's working in the Wall Street. In fact, it took us almost two months to get you know, an appointment with him because he was too busy. Now for my personal experience. Another story about centenaires, my grandmother, she lived uh, to 100, uh, God, uh, God bless her soul. She was a pioneer in Israel. She built a railroad between Tel Aviv and Afula. She established a village in Israel. She never visited the hospital. At the age of 90, and this is the connection for, to what I just tell you about, at the age of 90, she came to the doctor and said she had a problem with her hip. So the doctor says she needs to replace her hip, but she's 90 years old. Why to treat her? Anyhow, um, they treated, re replaced her hip, and she walked after one year later, and she lived to 100. Again, she never visited the hospital. The only occasion that she went to the hospital was at the age of 90, and um, as a successful uh, treatment, she left, lived with us for another t 10 years. This is just the background. So what do we have in this longevity study at Einstein? We have over 450 centenarians. They are all of them are from Ashkenazi descendant. We have 600 of their children, 600 of their either spouse to control for environment or neighborhood. All of them are Jewish Ashkenazi. We collected DNA and serum and history of longevity, and we're still collecting uh, um, trait and uh, phenotype on those, this unique population. Finally, it's an excellent model to assess genetic contribution to longevity. So, when we look at this population, what we found out that Look on the left side. Left side, you see that the proband, which are the centenarians, are in blue, have the same prevalence of hypertension, same prevalence of diabetes mellitus, myocardial infarction, and stroke as their control, which are 30 years younger. When you compare it to the offspring, which are the green in the middle, you see that they have much less hypertension, much less diabetes, and much less myocardial infarction, and no stroke, which what show us that they might be healthier than their cohort. They are the same age, but they are healthier. So if we look at those centenarians, and we say those centenarians are the same as the, their offspring, but the offspring only inherited 50% of their genetic background and, gen and then phenotype. But they are healthier, meaning that those centenarians either delay their aging process or they're simply healthier. Another piece of information is from here, which shows that if you were born to um, long-lived uh, parents, the probability for you to live longer uh, can come to uh, like six or seven odds ratio.
So with this whole information in mind, the question that we ask, is there a genetic component that promotes longevity? The first evidence for a genetic background for longevity comes from this paper by Perls et al., which show a target on a chromosome that associates with longevity. And when I say a target on a chromosome, this can be very uh, large component, and it, in this case, uh, there are like 150 genes in it. So they said there is something there, but we don't know exactly what, there, what is there. The initial way or the initial strategy where we started to uh, identify gene was the no one one, you know, to look under the light, which say the candidate gene approach to prove longevity genes. When we uh, started to discover, we had the CTP, the APOC, adiponectin, TSH, and the uh, D3 growth hormone receptor. But we say, first, the first analysis, or the one, the, we have some uh, characterization for those genes to be uh, longevity gene. The first one, it's need to show that there is difference prevalence between control and centenarians, the bottom left. The, the second is, is there is increase with age of this prevalence, meaning if it's increased with age, and remember the population shrink because people die, so there is something beneficial in this gene that uh, promotes this uh, guy to live longer, and that's why you have it in high prevalence where, in, where they are in 100 years old. The final one, and I don't want to get into more, uh, too much detail, is it's this longevity gene is buffering deleterious effect of genes that promote uh, death, okay? And this is the U-shape, meaning people started to die because there is no much prevalence of this longevity gene in the population, so people die. Then the, the prevalence of the longevity gene increase, so it buffered the deleterious effect, so people that have both longevity genes and the bad genes can still live. Okay, then it's create the U-shape. So, if the genes fulfill those three elements, and finally, when we associate the beneficial genotype with the good phenotype, and if they fulfill this characterization, then we call it longevity gene. So we still then with candidate gene approach, this is our bread and butter, but then we move to, or we switch gear to genomics. We said, we don't want to work, you know, gene by gene, otherwise it will take us 25,000 years. You know, and instead, what we will do is to scan the entire genome, and we have the uh, platform to do so, uh, and uh, see if we keep those two as uh, four characterization we can find more gene, but in genomics perspective. Since, like, four years ago, we didn't have that much time, and each platform, as you know, cost a lot, we use a different approach. What we say, we use DNA pools. What is DNA pools? 
DNA pools is to take 50 subjects, extract the DNA of each one of them, pull them together, and then hybridize to the platform that you look for. Okay? In this case, in one shot, you genotype 50 people. Okay? Instead of one, and you save a lot of money. In this case, we did 550, but it can be done in 250 and 500 and sometimes a dozen people at once. You can see in the second one the, uh, that the platform that we use is called Affymetrics with, um, that uh, has more than uh, almost 2 million points on the genome that can each one have a genetic um, uh, information about the person that you analyze. And this platform, as you can see, this is a quarter next to it. This is the size of this platform. And I don't want to go into detail of how do you do the analysis, but eventually you came out with candidate genes that then you go back to the population and instead of doing the whole spectrum of the gene, you do focus on one gene and do it individually. When we did this analysis, we found one gene and that was highly prevalent among our long-lived uh, people compared to the control which fulfilled the first element. The name of the gene is uh, PLLA and it's associated with in inflammatory, inflammatory. Then we say, you know, we got some money to do some uh, detailed uh, analysis. Um, sorry. Going back, when in genetic there is one uh, rule of thumb that you have to fulfill, otherwise nobody will believe what you have. You need to validate what you find in independent population. So you cannot say, I find something and this is all. In order to be you know, assured that what you have is right, you need to validate in a different population, not Ashkenazi, in our case, we did it in Caucasian, we did it in black, we did it in Netherlands people. And as you can see in this case, all of them show the same prevalence, higher in centenarians compared to lower in control. Then we say, okay, this was because, uh, you know, it saved time and money, but now we have the money to do the individual genotyping. So instead of lumping up all those 50 guys together, what we will do is to do it individually and do the analysis one by one. So when we did it, we took like 600 people, 360 are, uh, was proband centenarians, and 250 control. Each one was genotype was the, this platform that I just mentioned that has 2 million uh, genetic points on the genome. And now, as I said, we don't do it one by one. This is genomics, so in one shot we analyze those two million elements and ask if there is differences between centenaries and control. Here you can see a list of genes that show this different prevalence among centenaries compared to control, in which cases all of them had higher prevalence in proban compared to control. 
So to make life now more complex, as we were introduced into epigenomics. What epigenomics means? It can be that two people have the same DNA, like monozygote twin, have the same DNA, but they had different environment, they can grow up to a different person. So the question is, let's say control and centenarian share the same DNA. How come they become centenarian and the control become control, which means dies earlier, die earlier? Maybe there is epigenomic uh, component that uh, affect, that causing this effect. What we took is uh, a component of the blood, uh, which is called CD34+, plus, uh, which is closest to stem cell that probably everyone know about it. And this represents what happens if you introduce two epigenomic changes. And then we ask if there's differences between centenarians and control. Here you can see a heat map that clearly defined between the two groups. On the right side, on the right side, um, those are control. On the left side, uh, you see the centenarians, and the red is hypermethylation, and the yellow are hypermethylation. Changes epigenetically. You can see there is differences in the way uh, the barcode goes to be control and the barcode of the centenarians. Interestingly enough, the two samples after the five are one is 75 and one is 85. The 75 barcode is look like the 65 guys, while the 85 is closer to the 100. From this analysis, we again ask what's the difference of this hyper or hypomethylation, meaning is there increased methylation or epigenomic changes between centenarians and control? And indeed, what we found is there is changes, and remember, this is another rule of thumb, when you do the scanning with the two million point on the genome, either if you do it genotype or you do it epigenomically, you need to verify it in a different system. In this case, we did it in a different system called sequenome, doesn't matter, but this interrogates the loci itself, which means one place on the genome. And you can see here three examples of these uh, epigenomic changes between uh, you know, control and proband which validate our previous results. When we look farther and we, look, we say, okay, we know that there is epigenetic changes. What's happened on the expression level, meaning how is the gene translated, it, how it's expressed? And exactly what we saw in the epigenomic changes, it was translated into the expression of the gene, and indeed those changes epigenomically affect the expression of the gene that we look for. So the question that we ask ourselves is, 
we know that there is uh, increased changes epigenomic between when you grow older. So a baby has different changes, uh, you know, all over the loss life, there is epi uh, different epigenomic uh, changes compared to six years old. And 60 years old, we predict, will we have different changes when compared to 100 years old. So either it can increase, it can stay the same, or can decrease. What we found is that there is slight increase, but not as much as we predicted. Again, we're talking about only 15 cases. We are now aiming for 300 subjects to do the same thing and analyze globally. Again, we talked about uh, GWAS, which is whole genome genotyping. We talked about EWAS, because it's whole genome epigenomic changes. Now, I'm taking you into GWAS, in this case is expression, is genomic expression level. And in this case, we ask if there is different in the expression which was translated from the epigenomic changes, and we want to see if there is global changes of expression between genes along, you know, control and centenarians. And again, the same picture, but a little bit different. It's clearly defined between the proban, the centenarian, and the control, which means there is different expression of uh, genome expression between proband and control. And uh, principal components, just statistical analysis to show that the group clearly uh, separate between each other. Finally, the ultimate goal of us, and we're just now uh, going to do this, is to do whole genome sequence. Um, this is a result of the, you know, the, the Human Genome Project, and there is a machinery to clearly know the whole three billion base pairs, one after the other. So either it's entire genome or only the exome, when in only the express uh, sequence along the genome. This is what we're aiming now in both cases. By the way, the lady that I show at the beginning is running now from the entire genome uh, uh, sequencing. So I want to conclude. Um, when you ask people around the world, okay, what do you think donated to your, you know, exceptional long-lived life? So when you're going to Japan, they say it's all about fish and vegetable. When you go to China, it's the green tea and the ginseng. When you go to France, it's the red wine. Italy, it's the pasta. And Greece is the olive oil. When you go to Caucasian, Caucasia, you, they say it's all about the yogurt or just simply change date of birth. <laughs> 
In the United States, it's the exercise. In Cuba, it's the cigar. But in our population, when you ask everyone around, or no, those centenarians, what do you think it's so, one say it's the wine every, the Kiddush every week, one say, you know, we're wedding, and has, the common denominator between everyone is be happy. Thank you. <laughs>